All right, good morning, everyone. The scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. If you want to follow along, you can find it printed on page 6 in your bulletin. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, the one that will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adam. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. Let's pray. God, already in the reading, we've heard uh, severe words and in some ways confusing words. We don't always know what to make of your scriptures, but we trust in you and we trust that you'll give us your spirit. We trust that you can be near to us in a way that transforms our lives and conforms our hearts to be more like yours. God, help us to hear more than anything the power of your love and your deep covenant commitment to us. God, help us to see you as you are. Help us to hear you as you intend to speak to us today. So please come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Nikki Simmons was an 11th grader who was looking for a prom date, as many 11th graders do. I don't know if she ran out of options or if he was her first choice, but Nikki decided to write Conan O'Brien and invite the famous comedian and talk show host if he would perhaps go to Nikki's high school prom with her. I appreciate her boldness. Now, much to her surprise, if you can imagine it, Nikki one day received a letter in the mail from, guess who, Conan O'Brien. Uh, he actually wrote her back. And we have that letter, and this is what 
He wrote, Dear Nikki, thanks for your very flattering offer. It's great to know I have such a devoted fan out there, and I'm sure you would make a great prom date. Parenthesis, I didn't go to mine. It's a very sad story. Unfortunately, I got married recently, and my wife doesn't allow me to go to proms anymore with cute 16-year-old girls. Still, it was very cool of you to ask me. Thanks, and have a great evening, your friend, Conan. I mean, imagine getting that letter. Imagine getting a personal letter from any big celebrity, famous individual, someone you enjoy, love, admire, someone you've never personally met but know from a distance. How would that make you feel? I wonder how Nikki felt. How would that make you feel? Now imagine being a Christian in Western Asia in the late first century. You follow Jesus. You love him, in fact. Some of you have even been imprisoned for following him, even martyred for him. But you've never personally met Jesus. He returned to heaven 50 or 60 years ago, and then one day, There's a buzz going around your church, Uh, something about a letter. People hear others saying, I can't believe he wrote us. Who, you ask? Someone replies, Jesus. We got a letter from him, a letter from Jesus. Well, what did he say? Uh, Suddenly people look a little awkward. Well, do you want to hear the good news first or the bad news first? Imagine receiving a personal letter from Jesus, a letter to your own church addressed personally to you, Grace Meridian Hill. Imagining receiving something like that from Jesus. Guess what, church? We have. See, we're continuing a sermon series that we began a few weeks ago called Letters from Jesus. And what we're studying is the second and third chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And there we find seven curious letters that were personally dictated by Jesus to churches in seven cities in Western Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as you may know, seven letters, seven churches, the number seven is super symbolic in the Bible. It kind of means completeness or wholeness. And that means that Jesus names challenges that, yes, were historically unique, specific to those Christians in those particular cities centuries ago, But the number seven tells us he's actually speaking to the whole church. He's actually addressing the church of all times and places. In other words, with each of the seven letters that we're studying in this series, Jesus is writing to us too. The church in the United States of America, the church in Washington, D.C., Grace Meridian Hill, 2023. Each Sunday, we're looking at one of these seven incredible 
letters, and today we've come upon the letter that was written to the church in Thyatira, again in western, modern Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. And Thyatira was a bustling ancient city, one that was well known in that area. Thyatira. Well, this letter begins with a stunning description of Jesus that you heard in verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is language you may recognize, maybe not, that's borrowed from Psalm chapter 2. We heard part of that in our call to worship at the beginning of the service. And also Daniel chapter 10. This depicts Jesus as powerful, kingly, authoritative, and with penetrating eyesight. You heard that language, eyes that are like blazing fire. See, nothing is hidden from him. Verse 23 also says, I am he who searches minds and hearts. Jesus sees everything. And what is the first thing that this all-seeing, almighty King Jesus What's the first thing that he mentions to the church? Well, maybe it's surprising to know this. It's encouragement. Jesus says, I see through all things, and let me tell you how great you are. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Do you know a God of grace who even with his penetrating eyes and sees and knows all things, the first thing that he notices is the grace of God at work in this church, in your lives, in my life. Your deeds, your love, your, your sacrifice, the moment you took to speak words of kindness to a person. Uh, that thing that you did, that actually yeah, it was costly to you. Costly maybe of your possessions, maybe of your time, maybe of your emotions, to actually sit, to be with a person that needed a friend. The ways that you are now doing more than you did at first, which is another way of seeing, I see your growth, your progress. You're not what you used to be. I see more of me, Jesus says, in you today than I did years ago. And it's a wonderful sight. All of it, friends, take heart. The things that you do in secret, the good things, the things of faithfulness and faith and love, Jesus sees it all. He has not forgotten any of it. Like he himself taught in Matthew chapter 6, your father sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. Take heart. Take encouragement. Sisters, brothers, Jesus sees your faith. Jesus loves your love. His letter to the church in Thyatira begins with encouragement and commendation, but you might have noticed it quickly transitions to clear-eyed critique. Listen again to verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel 
who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Okay, what is he talking about here? From what we can tell, we're not sure, but we're piecing together what was going on in that church at that time. There appears to have been a prominent woman in this church who claimed to be a prophet, which meant she was speaking and teaching, claiming the authority of God. We don't know exactly what she was teaching and saying, but apparently she was leading the Thyatiran Christians into two particular areas of sin. First, sexual immorality, and second, the eating of food sacrificed to idols, which refers to idolatry. And for this reason, Jesus calls her Jezebel. Well, who's that? You may know if you've read the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, that Jezebel was the evil queen of Israel in the Old Testament, the wife of King Ahab. Jezebel was famous for, guess what? Idolatry and sexual immorality. See, she was the one who promoted the worship of Baal. That was the famous Canaanite fertility god. And Baal worship involved fertility rites that included illicit sex, orgies, and prostitution. The idea there was if you wanted your crops to grow under the blessing of Baal, if you wanted your harvest and your flocks to reproduce to abundance, well, you would need to sort of enact and encourage the gods to reproduce, you see, by engaging yourself in these fertility rites. And it seems that the Thyatian Christians were being misled into sort of a Roman version of just about the same practices. From what we understand in the first century, Roman meals were often religious meals. They were common Thyatira. So together you'd eat grain, wine, and meat that were explicitly served as offerings to pagan gods. More so, banquets and formal meals, whether in private homes or maybe in public places or pagan temples, were often big events that involved sexual entertainment and prostitutes. For example, according to the Roman rhetorician Quintilian, female lovers and male concubines were everywhere at these feasts. Every dinner party is loud, he wrote, with foul songs and things are presented to children's eyes about which we should blush to speak. According to Jesus, not all, but many members of the church in Thyatira were participating in all of this sexual immorality and idolatry. Jesus actually names this very same pair of sins in his letter to the church in Pergamum, another city that we'll be studying next Sunday. So next week, I'd like to look at the problem of idolatry. Today, I'd like to focus on the problem of sexual immorality And let's tell the truth, it's no one's favorite topic to talk about, but here it is, 
And remember, Jesus isn't just writing to Thyatirans 2,000 years ago. He's writing to you and to me. Can we talk for a moment about sexual immorality? And here's where I want to start. I think to start, it's important to be clear that what Jesus is referring to is not him teaching and regurgitating the tenets of what's been described as purity culture. That was the evangelical subculture that sort of was popular, especially around the 1990s, that attempted to promote sexual abstinence before marriage. But in practice, what it tended to do was to overemphasize sexual purity with an almost obsessive concern. Some of you actually grew up in the midst of this. It was legalistic, especially in the ways that it laid down strict rules for dating, rules that could not be found anywhere, in fact, in the Bible. Purity culture placed a disproportionate burden of responsibility on women, and it later placed a disproportionate concern with gay sexuality. And it motivated young people with fear and shame, even presenting sexual purity as a measure of a person's worth and just nearly as a matter of Christian salvation. I mentioned this for two, three reasons. First of all, a lot of people have been hurt by purity culture and people that promoted it. And I know that includes some of you here in this room, hurt spiritually, hurt relationally, hurt in terms of your mental health, hurt in terms of your spiritual well-being. Secondly, it's important for us not to undiscerningly import elements of purity culture into passages like this simply because it mentions and in fact condemns sexual immorality. So it's important for us to be able to distinguish between the two. But also it's important, third, equally important, not simply to react to the flaws and the dangers of purity culture, and therefore abandon any and all biblical teaching on sexuality that sounds just remotely traditional. Again, the important thing here is that we discern, that we, yes, maybe critique flaws that have been carried on by the church, but also to work hard to understand what the Bible actually says, what God in his love actually wants to teach us. That's hard work. Sometimes it's unclear work, but the Bible does give us some clarity. And so let's consider what it tells us about sexual immorality in three parts. It's meaning, it's consequences, and hope in the face of it all. First, the meaning of sexual immorality. To understand what sexual immorality is, we need to be able to understand what sexual morality is, what healthy and good sexual intimacy was meant to be. Not just defining it negatively, as the church can often tend to do, but to define it positively in light of the Word of God. And here I just want to give to you a, a, maybe a quick summary statement that you might work with. 
maybe even write down and consider, but let me give it a shot here. Sexual intimacy, what is it? Sexual intimacy is a gift of God, a whole self-exchange of self-giving love within the security of an exclusive, lifelong, public commitment. It is for the mutual strengthening of that commitment and, according to God's providence, the co-creation of life and love. Let me read that more quickly. Sexual intimacy is a gift of God, a whole self-exchange of self-giving love within the security of an exclusive, lifelong public commitment. It is for the mutual strengthening of that commitment and, according to God's providence, the co-creation of life and love. Can I break down some of those phrases for you to help us understand what the Bible tells us about sexual intimacy? First, it's a gift of God, right? Something that God actually gives to human relationships as a gift. According to the Bible, it is, yes, often misused, broken, but it is inherently good. Secondly, it's a whole self-exchange. It's a giving not only of your body and vulnerability, but also of your soul and of your life. You see, what it's meant to depict is a union of two people in all of themselves coming together as one, all of myself without reservation. In other words, it's meant to depict not just romantic love between two companions. It's meant to depict that I give myself to you in every human way possible. I give myself to you not only in my emotions, but also I give myself to you legally, economically, emotionally, personally, psychologically, without reservation. You can hear already why it is that it's a self-giving love. See, it's not simply, sexual intimacy is not simply a matter of self-expression, as the world would have these days. It's not just a matter of self-expression, it's a matter of self-giving. And it's a matter of doing this in the context of security. Security, you see, because there's a vulnerability, isn't there, to giving all of myself to another person without reservation. And so it is meant to be exchanged in the context of promises. Lifelong, exclusive, public, accountable promises of commitment that are exchanged between two people. In other words, this is precisely why God embedded sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. You see, because if he doesn't get a share of your bank account, he doesn't get a share of your body. If he hasn't made promises to give everything to you, He doesn't get a piece of that part of you. You see, sexual intimacy was meant to be exchanged and experienced and indeed given in the secure context of a promised lifelong commitment that's also known 
as marriage, and it is given as a gift because it then strengthens that bond shared between the two individuals. There's a renewing and a strengthening of that commitment of love and promise. And in fact, the way that God designed it then is that there is in his providence, not every time, not everyone, but generally speaking, an opportunity, the possibility of the co-creation of more life and love. In other words, procreation being an ordinary part of the exchange of sexual intimacy, which of course is not the way that our modern culture thinks and talks about sex and sexuality, but in fact is how God designed it. This pastor and author, now late pastor and author Tim Keller, once said very succinctly, sex is sacred because with God it co-creates a new soul, a new person is formed. See, this helps us understand what sexual immorality might be, and it shows us how any violation of God's design for his gift of sexual intimacy is what, in fact, we're talking about here with sexual immorality. Not just a list of discrete sins, but a violation of this beautiful, glorious, coherent design for how this exchange was meant to be experienced and given in human relationships. And this is why the Greek word that's often translated sexual immorality, porneia, always refers to sexual relationships outside of marriage. Intimacy exchanged with anyone besides your spouse. And this finds expression in a wide variety of sinful ways. Let me tell you first one thing that sexual immorality does not include. Sexual violence and abuse on the recipient's end. Victims. See, sexual violence and abuse is related, of course. There's overlap, but it's very important to understand that in instances of abuse, the primary sin is the sinful exercise of coercive power. And it is the perpetrator, not the victim, who is morally then responsible. Let me be abundantly clear. If you have been a victim of sexual abuse, you have not sinned. You have been grievously sinned against. What do sins of sexual immorality then include? Well, it includes, of course, adultery extramarital relations. It also includes then hooking up with someone that you're not married to, right? And again, I want you to hear these things not just as discrete and even arbitrary lists of sins, but rather in the context of how I think the Bible defines sexual intimacy, right? This self-giving exchange within the context of exchange promises, right? Public commitments made, in a lifelong relationship, often described as marriage. Adultery, hooking up 
Sexual immorality also involves sexual desires for someone that's not your spouse that might be aroused by touch or words or images. And Jesus is very serious about physical acts, but he's also very serious about desires. We hear that when he taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, at a man lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's not just the outward actions and behaviors. It's also the thoughts in our minds and the desires in our hearts and is our, in our souls. There's another way in which we need to note in ways that sexual immorality is expressed. And this involves same-sex sexual intimacy and our way of presenting this to you, I think, touches on why it is that that exchange among gay partners is also, according to the Bible, contrary to God's design. Because, again, it's not just a one-to-one personal exchange of romance in love, but rather it is put in the context of something that God had a particular design for. Namely, marriage, which we're told in Ephesians 5, is a public metaphor of Christ's union with the church. Jesus and the church, spiritually speaking, are said to be married. And that means marriage, by definition, is a union across difference. Christ and his church, man and woman, not sexual sameness. And secondly, as we've talked about both sexual intimacy and marriage, are oriented towards, though not always guaranteed in its results, to be oriented towards the possibility of procreation. The creation of new life. Of new love. But I want to focus on a particular expression of this sin, of sexual immorality. And it's one that I believe is choking out spiritual life in countless people, not only in churches, but across our city, across our nation, and even our world. And it's pornography. And it's something that must be mentioned because it's, in a way, a silent killer, even though it's universally recognized. Pornography, just to be clear, especially for younger members in the room, just to define it, pictures or videos or people with little or no clothes on that are designed to arouse or stimulate sexual desire or that portray people, images, videos, that portray people engaging in illicit sexual acts. And the reason why I think we need to pay attention to this is because pornography is, is everywhere particularly online, in a way that's actually unprecedented in our culture. And in fact, it's getting more and more graphic than ever. In fact, today, if you are not actively resisting pornography in your life, you will be bombarded by it. You will, in fact, be overcome by it. I don't need to personally be a prophet to say that there are many in this room that are being swallowed up by it. I say that with compassion and with mercy. And I say that not only to men in the room 
who I think do have a particular unique dimension of struggling with this in the way that men are wired, but also to women who, statistically speaking, are just about now struggling at the same rates with pornography, both in viewership and in addictions, as their male counterparts. I said the word addiction. I want to make sure that we talk about this too. Because one of the problems with pornography is that it has addictive power over its viewers. Addiction, of course, it just means a habit that's hard to quit. But an addiction, strictly speaking, is more than just it's hard. But when your brain gets sort of stuck in a certain way, and when spiritually you get deformed in your soul in a certain way, it's not just hard to quit, but humanly, left to your own powers, it's nearly impossible to quit. As the human and the brain's reward systems that produce cravings get distorted and there's a total loss of control. So here's the problem. It's not just the sexual immorality of pornography that is epidemic. It's, it's addiction. And if it's an addiction, it's because so many people have been engaging in its use for many years, even starting from childhood and adolescence. By definition, addiction means that you're unable simply to stop. And by that, I don't simply mean that you're able to say, well, it's only sometimes that I find myself falling into this, or not in the last week. But no, if an addiction, then the goal is total sobriety. Just like every other kind of addiction that we're more familiar with or we're more willing, I think, culturally to speak openly about. The goal is total sobriety, and if it's an addiction, it needs to be treated and approached not like just any ordinary sin, but with a different measure of support and accountability and treatment and recovery, it's the right language to use, in order for you to overcome it. By God's grace, victory is possible. Healing is possible. Wholeness is possible is possible, but we do need to grapple with what it actually is in the first place in our hearts. I want to be absolutely clear, sexual immorality is not, according to the Bible, the worst of all sins. It is not an unforgivable sin either, praise God, but it is a unique sin with a unique power, namely because the way in which it is an intersection of our bodies and our souls. There's something mystically powerful about the nature of sex and sexual intimacy, and it's why God cares so deeply about it, why he addresses it here, even in this passage, with such intensity. Which brings us to this, not just the meaning of sexual immorality, but the consequences of sexual immorality. I'll be brief here. You notice some of the language here in this passage is pretty serious. We're told about Jezebel, this false teacher, and we're told that she is threatened with the severest of punishments. Two things that we need to understand. Number one, that Jesus isn't saying this to someone who has just failed in a one-time fashion, 
This is someone who has resisted stubbornly again and again and again and again before God. It's why verse 21 says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, yet she is unwilling. This is not a slip-up, but a stubborn commitment to sin and error. But secondly, it's also important to notice that Jesus holds her severely accountable, not just because of her sin, but because she is an authoritative teacher in the church. And God always holds such people with formal authority, even if it's self-proclaimed, to a higher standard, to a greater degree of accountability because of their influence over people. In fact, it's really important to recognize that what Jesus most pins down here in this passage is not just sexually immoral sin itself, it's the tolerance of those who teach so. It's not just the mistakes that are made It's shrugging one's shoulders or even actively pursuing teachings that are contrary to the words of God. To this point, it's important to to point out that we need to be careful about the teaching that we tolerate as it relates to sexual intimacy. The books that we read, the podcasts that we listen to, the Instagram influencers that we surround ourselves with, especially those that teach in a manner that say, hey, there's something you've been taught, but let me teach you something that you've never heard. You see, because in verse 24, Jesus says, he refers to Satan's so-called deep secrets. It seems as though this person identified as Jezebel, nicknamed Jezebel, was teaching in a manner where she was saying, look, let me teach you what you've never known, the deep secrets of God. See, you, you, you see, you've, you've been taught this thing in purity culture, but let me tell you, not only is that wrong, but you're free to do anything you want. It's a, this, no, no one's going to tell you this. This is a deep secret. This is a deep knowledge, a deeper understanding. If you really want to understand the mind of God, here it is and. Jesus is saying, be careful, be warned. The consequences that he gives are severe, even terrifying. And this is where we have to understand that Jesus is threatening, yes, threatening, temporal judgments upon this false teacher. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to their deeds. This bed of suffering probably refers to some kind of sickness, some kind of disease that one suffered, that she was threatened to suffer with. Here we're we're shaken to our core with what Jesus says. It almost doesn't reconcile with our understanding of who he is in other places of scripture. I simply want to put out to you this. We do need to take seriously what the Bible says about temporal judgments and the discipline of God. That even if God ultimately forgives, and even if God in his mercy will not render ultimate judgment upon a person, he will allow the consequences of our sin to play out. 
He will allow us to feel the pain of the things that our sins cause in our broken relationships, in our broken moral universe. Don't you see, when you are engaging in sexual immoral sin, you are leaning into a fragmentation of your soul. You're saying, I'll give this piece of me, but I'm not going to give you that. I'm compartmentalizing myself to say, here, I want, ex- I-, I want to experience the pleasures of this, but I won't give you the responsibilities of the fullness of this relationship. And the more you live fragmented, you are ripping apart your humanity. You may not even know how to describe it. In some days, you may not even feel it, but that's precisely what you are doing to yourself, tearing apart your soul. God wants you to be human and whole. It's in his mercy that he allows us sometimes to Feel the devastation that we are causing both to ourselves and to others. That means sometimes feeling it even in our bodies and sometimes feeling it and seeing it in the brokenness of our relationships. It's even in his mercy that he will do that. Remember, he's doing this in order to call people to repentance. He's allowing temporal judgments and discipline to be scattered across even his church for the sake of rescuing people in his love. It's a humbling and sobering thought, dear friends, but we do need to grapple with this. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about last night. I'm trying to help you see in God's word a Savior who's so committed, intensely committed to setting you free. To opening wide your heart to his love. A savior who's committed to making you whole. And that brings us lastly to the hope that we have in the darkness of sexual immorality. The meaning, the consequences, and now the hope. Exhale. Here's good news. Good news, good news, good news. For all his warnings, Jesus offers real hope, powerful promises to those who remain faithful. We see this at the end of verse 26, 27, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. What does that mean and why does it matter? Listen to this. Jesus is the king of kings. He rules over all things, even the nations of the world, with sovereign authority. Verse 28 is quoting verse 2, which describes the Messiah as the royal son conquering the nations and ruling over them. And here's what that king is promising you and me. If you are united to Christ by faith, you too, we too, will rule together with him. We will reign with him. Christ gives you royal authority. He shares his throne with you. 
And this is what C.S. Lewis in his children's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, depicts so well. You might know the story, these three ordinary children from England who are transported in a wonderful way into sort of a fantasy world that proves to be less, more than fantasy, but rather real, a world called Narnia. But when the Pevensey children arrive there, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they realize that they're kings and queens. Initially, their crown and their robe are too big for them. The sword is too heavy for them to carry. They're children after all. But you see, the same is true of you. You, me, we are royalty in Christ, called and made to reign together with him with dignity and loyalty. Right now, with all your sin and brokenness, you don't look the part, little one. But you're growing into it, and one day you will look like him in his kingly glory. And you say, well, what difference does that make? as I struggle with these sins. Listen, some of us are drowning in sin and addiction, and you today might be listening to all this, and you say, I am feeling utterly powerless, and in fact, defeated. And you need to know, by the power and the authority of Christ, that you have authority over sin. By the resurrection of Christ who has defeated sin. You have authority over Satan, who throws temptation after temptation towards you. He must flee when you tell him to flee according to the power of Christ's word. You have authority over the powers of darkness. You bear an iron scepter in your hand by faith that can dash to pieces the power of sexual sin. You are knocked down, perhaps, but in Christ you are not defeated. And some of you are treating yourself and your body like something cheap. Because you've forgotten that you're a queen. You've forgotten that you're called to be a king. Someone's told you maybe you're filthy. Jesus tells you you're royalty. You are nobility. So rise up with God-given dignity. You think you've been clothed in in shame, but now in Christ you're robed in Jesus' name. And so you can persevere and fight and get the help that you need and address things and speak up and, and take courage to reach to a friend or to a pastor or to someone around you and say, I need help. I've been struggling alone. I've been dying with shame. I've been crippled in darkness. But I'm coming out into the light. And by God's grace and because of his love, here I am. 
seeking wholeness, seeking healing, seeking Christ. Which brings us to the final point. Because there's more. Look again at the last part of verse 27. Jesus says, I will also give that one the morning star. The morning star, what's that? Well, that's probably an allusion to the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which reads, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Ancient Jewish and really early Christian readers viewed those words as a promise of the coming Messiah who was called the Son of the Star. So this picture of a morning star rising up, that was a symbol of hope, a light. Jesus' light shining in darkness, a bright star, a morning star shining, rising in the midst of darkness. Friends, you feel like you've been in a dark place with this particular area of sin. Do you know the star is rising upon you? And you know what his name is. His name is Jesus. And you know what you get in him? All of him. All of him. You get his forgiveness. You get his love. You get his truth-telling grace. You get his compassion and the way in which he comes near to you. The way in which he knows your sin and yet is not repulsed by you, but grabs a hold of you in love and says, I will give you power to overcome what you in your own strength cannot overcome. This Jesus who did not hold back anything as we do in our sins, saying, here, take this piece of me and I'll take that piece of you without giving all of ourselves to each other. Jesus says, I will hold nothing back from you. I will hold nothing back from you. I will give all of myself to you. It's why the Bible calls Jesus the one who's like a husband in marriage, a spouse in marriage. He gives all of himself to us. His love, his presence, his power. Some of you have given up. Beating addiction feels impossible. Remaining faithful to the Bible's sexual ethic feels impossible. The darkness feels too thick. But beloved, the morning star is rising. Do you see his light? And when you grab a hold of his hope, because for you, today can be a new day. Jesus closes with these words as he closes every one of his letters. Whoever has ear, ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What our ears need to hear is not only a diagnosis of our problem, our sin. Our ears need to hear the promise of his grace. Both. All of it. Beloved, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to you and to me.